Our reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Thank you, Merce. Nice to see you again. I'm glad you read those Beatitudes slowly. I think it's right that we sort of let them sink into us and and seep into our bones. I don't know if you've been having this thought as you just look at the Beatitudes and the way one follows after another. I'm not saying you should have had this thought and you're you're a bit silly if you haven't, but but someone might have done. The thought that maybe the order is kind of deliberate and one sort of progresses to the other. And actually, ever since Matthew wrote these words down, um, quite a lot of Christians have seen in the order of these Beatitudes a kind of a a spiritual progression, getting a sense that they're not just individual statements about the Christian life, but that actually deliberately one leads on to the other, as if they were kind of the rungs, the successive rungs of a spiritual stepladder, that we're to climb right through our Christian life. That's been, that's been quite a common way of, of understanding the Beatitudes. And, and maybe that kind of resonates, if you've been a Christian a number of years, maybe that resonates with your own experience of what it is to, to grow in Christian life and discipleship in the Lord Jesus. So maybe you have a sense that it kind of starts around verse 3. It starts, doesn't it, by coming to admit how empty and helpless we are before the Lord, being poor in spirit. And if verse 3 is just kind of a a mental recognition of who I am before God, then verse 4 kind of adds the emotional side to that. If I know I'm poor in spirit before the Lord, I'm I'm now going to have to mourn over my sin. That's just going to have to follow. And then once you feel the weight of your own sin... That's just going to lead to verse 5, relating that way to others. Because it's going to be much harder to live a life of pushing yourself above everybody else, imagining that you are on a higher plane than everybody else, if you've done verse 3 and 4 and said, I'm just as low as everybody else before the Lord. And once you've reached that point of kind of living, living out meekness in relation to everybody else, acknowledging your sin, then then you are going to want verse 6. You are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not only are you going to mourn over your sin, you are going to want to replace it with righteousness, living rightly before God in his world. So in other words, verse 6, you kind of go up a rung on the spiritual stepladder, hungering and thirsting to, to live rightly. And then verses 7 and 8 would give examples of the kind of right deeds you might now be hungering and thirsting to live out. Being merciful. Having a purity in heart that will show itself in life. You get the sense. I want to say, 
If you see in these verses a spiritual progression that helps you make sense of what the Lord has taken you through as you've grown in him and gives you a kind of vision for where you might now want to seek to grow in the future, if you're seeing that in this and that really helps you, I think that's a great thing. Maybe it's just as I ran through that, you got a sense of, I think I'm maybe sort of stuck at one point, as it were, on that. I'm kind of stuck down here on the spiritual stepladder, but, but there's more to go. Maybe you've kind of got stuck at an early stage, as it were, stuck in verses 3 and 4, which are all about you and God. And the progression shows you it's got to move beyond a mourning over your own sin, now, now to a real desire, a hungering to do right, to live right, do right things in God's world in relation to other people. Or maybe, here would be another example, you look at verses 6 and 7 and feel I'm, maybe I'm kind of stuck between verse 6 and verse 7. I am hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but it's a kind of general desire I have that isn't really landing anywhere. You know, a bit Here's a dumb illustration that occurred to me. You know, a bit like someone who is really, really, really hungry, but they are postponing eating because they just can't stop scrolling through Deliveroo because they can't decide which of the multiple options they want to eat. I, I've never been in that situation. I just imagined that. <laughs> and so if you feel stuck between verses 6 and 7, maybe what the progression shows you is, okay, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But now land somewhere. Maybe the Lord puts his finger on, well, what about being merciful towards others more than you are now? That might be the next step. Over the years, many, many intelligent, spiritual, godly people have seen something like a stepladder of spiritual growth in these Beatitudes. So many that I struggle to think they're, that they're all wrong. I think it must be that this meaning is in here somewhere. And if seeing that inspires you to become more of who, you're, who you already are, that, that would be a, a wonderful work of the Lord from this for you. But you've heard me say, and, and the way I've been describing that, you're probably getting the hint, um, I, 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 I really don't think, I would agree with those who don't think, that these verses are primarily plotting the narrative of your spiritual growth in life. Get this good, next rung on the ladder. Got that good, next rung on the ladder. If that kind of makes it, it's fine. I think these are less a stepladder to spiritual growth and more a portrait that paints in different colours of who the Christian is to go, look at that, that's you. Stay like that. I think it's... It's more a portrait than a stepladder. As I've kept stressing, Jesus is saying mainly here, Christian, by definition, if you are Christian, this is already you. Don't become something else. And if you, if you just boil that message down, it is something like, Christian, this is what you are, now become it more. Or as people have often phrased it, even more simply, what is Christ's demand in life on the Christian? Become who you are. Become who you are. 
That, that's often said to be a, a pretty good summary of quite a lot that the New Testament says about the demand now on the Christian believer. I think that's how these Beatitudes and how the Sermon on the Mount is working as well. So, so let's now come to the next three Beatitudes. And again, I'll, I'll focus on each one. And you'll see, I, I'm, I'm just kind of doing the same thing each time. I, I wanted to convince you, if you're not yet convinced, that if you're a Christian, this is you. And to show that Christ's demand is, just don't depart. Live the, just live this. So verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness, it, it might mean a number of different things. At its heart, it is inner morality, inner cleanliness that shows itself in, in godly, holy action in the world. Purity on the inside that flows out into doing right on the outside. A Christian is simply already hungering and thirsting for righteousness if they are a Christian. How can you tell? Well, when you have sinned and are really conscious of it, what is it you do? Do you shrug your shoulders and go, hey-ho, never mind, stuff happens, no one's perfect? Of course not. I mean, by definition, that is not what a Christian does. What they do is, in some way, maybe fighting towards it, maybe partly through gritted teeth, but what they do is they come back to God. They may feel very weary and very ashamed of having to come back to him again over this. They may well feel a kind of trepidation, as if God is going, again? I'm getting tired of this. But what they choose to remember is what they know of God's infinite patience. And so come back to him is the thing they do. They ask him once more for strength to follow Christ and not that sin. You see what they're doing? They, they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And you can see that because they are not hungering and thirsting for more sin. Sin is the thing they are sick to the back teeth with and long to be rid of. What they crave is holiness. And so Jesus says of them, blessed, you are living well, commended, good on you. There is a real tension here, isn't there? And we feel it. There is a real felt tension. We, the Christian is in the right place. Deep down, they are craving the right thing. There is a satisfaction in that. God has redirected our most deep desire, so it is reaching in the right direction. But we are not there yet. We don't yet have all the righteousness we crave. And in that, there is a deep and sometimes a grim dissatisfaction. And that is what the second line of um, that beatitude Verse 6 is all about, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And again, as with many of these second lines in the Beatitude, there is, there is a now part to it and there is a not yet part to it. The now part is we, we are satisfied in the here and now. 
God is filling us with righteousness, even while we are dissatisfied that sin still dogs us. Dissatisfied that part of us still loves sin for the brief thrill that it brings. Dissatisfied that the full satisfaction of having every shred of sin stripped out from us has not happened yet. Because that's not yet. That's to come. The, the moment after you die. Or when Christ returns. I, I do think that seeing that tension and feeling it, in a sense, that does point us to a, a, a real Christian maturity. The mature Christian has learned to look at themselves, as it were, in the spiritual mirror uh, of, of Scripture and say, I, I know Christ and I am satisfied in him. I just am. In him is everything I need. I really do believe that. He, he has grown righteousness in me over the years. For all that, the sin, for all that sin remains, I can see sins that years ago I used to really love and not really fight against. And now I do not love them. And I do seek his strength in fighting against them. I, I am satisfied in that. He's filling me with righteousness. And I am also dissatisfied. Dis dissatisfied that I am not yet what I should be. I am not yet what he will one day make me. And... I think you can see that spiritual maturity, that satisfaction and dissatisfaction, all at the same time. You can see that in the Apostle Paul, in the way he talks about his own life in Christ. I mean, read Paul. There is a great joy right now in knowing Jesus, isn't there? There is a great joy right now in serving Jesus. You see that in Paul. But he can also say in Philippians chapter 3, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And I haven't got there yet. There's the dissatisfaction in him. Spiritually satisfied in the righteousness that Christ has produced. Frail though the flower may sometimes look to you. Satisfied in that. And in the, in the same moment, dissatisfied with all the unrighteousness that still remains. <coughs> if you recognise something of that tension and conflict in, in yourself, I want to say, I think, from this verse, that is not dubious Christianity. That is not childish Christianity. That, that is real, mature Christianity. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then in the next beatitude, maybe there is a kind of progression here. Jesus gives an example of that righteousness. So verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is mercy? You could call it active compassion for others. That would be my best stab at a, like a sort of a four-word definition. Active compassion for others. Jesus once told a story, one of his best known, the Good Samaritan. And the word mercy is precisely used to describe what the Good Samaritan does. So this story looks like a good definition of mercy. 
Many of us will know the story. Muggers had beaten a man up and they'd left him half dead by the side of the road. And two people coming along the road see him but walk past and do nothing. They had their own particular reasons for not wanting to touch a body that might be a dead body. That would inconvenience them. So they go by. But another man coming along, he stops. He takes pity on this guy. Discovered he's not completely dead. He's only half dead. Bandages him up. Carries him to someone who's now going to look after him. And pays for the whole thing. And the verdict is, that is the man who had mercy on him. He'd shown active compassion. In my experience, that is just what Christians do. Someone in the church family loses their job. Maybe it's even known it was their own stupid fault that they got the sack. But it is normal in church life, isn't it, that fellow believers will make sure that the family can eat and that the rent is paid. Or an older person in the church family is cut off by their children who just won't speak to them. And the loneliness is, is really crushing. And it is just normal, isn't it, in the life of the Christian church for some fellow believers to start visiting and being companions. That They just do, because, because that is what Christians do. It is part of the visible evidence that, that this is the people of God. And here is why that is evidence. Verse 7. The second line, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Sometimes someone who is really a Christian can get really, really disturbed by that verse. I want to tell you why that should not be so. Uh, this does not mean does not mean that God sees you being merciful and says, "Well, because you are such splendidly merciful boys and girls, I'm going to show you my mercy." If that's what it meant, and you knew yourself well, you'd be really disturbed, wouldn't you? Because then you'd worry if God could ever show you mercy because you've never been merciful enough. That is not what this says. That is not Christianity. God, of course, shows us mercy not because we deserve it, but precisely because we don't. Christ died for us, Paul says, while we were still sinners. Not when we ticked enough mercy-showing boxes to force his hand to be kind to us. So if that is not what verse 7 is saying, what is it saying? It's this. Someone who will not show mercy to others is simply someone who is not capable of seeing themselves as needing God's mercy. And because they are not capable of seeing themselves as someone who needs God's mercy, they will never ask God for mercy. So they simply cannot be a Christian, unless that changes. If I won't show active compassion to others, then basically I think I am above them. I think that my time and my convenience are more important than helping them in their distress. I just think that, if I will not show them active compassion at all. 
In other words, I think I'm the centre of the universe. And the person who thinks that they are the centre of the universe can never acknowledge the reality that they are not the centre of the universe, but God is. And they have offended against him and need his mercy. They will never reach that point until they acknowledge that they are not the centre of the universe. Now, as I'm talking about this showing mercy to others, it, it may well be that someone is thinking, I, 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 I really do long for this, but, you know, it just kind of feels like the well of compassion has run dry in me. Compassion fatigue has set in. That's a phrase, isn't it? Compassion fatigue. So many needy people. And, you know, it just feels like it takes all my energy to get me through the day, let alone trying to help someone else out. Life can feel like that. This verse points us to where to go when it feels like the well has run dry. Even acknowledging the well has run dry, and I don't want it to be dry, I want it to be filled again, that shows that verse 5 is a blessed over you. You want to head in the right direction. I guess where this verse points to is God's own mercy to us. We invited sin in, and guess what? It beat us up and left us dead by the side of the road. It was God who stopped when he saw us. It was God who sent his son to tend our wounds. It was God who spared no expense, even the life of his own son, to see us brought back to spiritual life and health. And in the end, it is only drinking again at that well that will refresh us in again showing mercy to others when we feel our own well has run dry. So, good on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are satisfied. They will be. Good on those who show mercy, because as they do so, they are showing that they are the very people who are capable of and have asked God for mercy on themselves. And then third in this talk, a little more briefly, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I've been saying of all these Beatitudes, if you're a Christian, comfort and reassurance, this is already you. Now it may well be that when we come to this verse, and and you, you now know, you can see me coming a mile away, I'm going to say, Christian, this is you, pure in heart. And you may well be thinking, if I followed you to this point, here's the point where I'm going to check out. Because frankly, if you could see my daydreams, you would, n- you would just not stand there and say, pure in heart, that's you. Now, of course, there is a significant sense in which this is not us. Stare into my daydreams. Frankly, spend seven minutes in my company and it will be evident that there is impurity in my heart. Same with you. And we know that. One day our hearts will be entirely pure, entirely wiped clean of every last taint of sin. And that day has not yet come. It will, but not yet. However, this language of pure in heart, it also has the sense of of single-minded. 
I, I don't have the time now to take you to all the places to look at that. But if, if you're a note taker, you could look in James chapter 4 later and you'll see that the notion of being pure there is linked with being single-minded, not double-minded. This notion of being single-minded, someone once put it that what the scriptures are driving at with this is willing one thing, wanting one thing, desiring one thing. Pure in heart in that sense. So in that light, here is the question. Here is the best way I know how to phrase this. If you can improve on this, please tell me afterwards. Here's the best way I know how to phrase it. What do you really, really want deep down? What do you want to want? I I could ask you like this. How many things do you want to want? Do you want to want lots of things? I mean, do you want to want to sin and want to want to follow Christ? Or do you find yourself wanting to sin, but not wanting to want to sin? What you want to want is to follow Christ. Does that make any sense? <laughs> okay. You can tell me afterwards if this makes sense. If it doesn't, come and chat to me. I want to suggest, if you are a Christian, you don't want to want to sin. Desires to sin come up, and you don't want them to be there. Not really. Not for more than a minute. Sure, you sometimes want to sin, but that want does not define you. It dogs you. It's in your heart, but it doesn't define you. What you want to want is Christ and Christ alone. And in that sense, you are single-minded. You want one thing. You desire one thing, except it's not a thing, it's Christ and his righteousness. And in that sense, you are already pure in heart. There's the now. There is the now for the Christian of you are pure in heart. And Jesus says, good on you for that. That is living well in my world. And now the work goes on till the day we die or Christ returns of stripping out every last remaining impurity that is still there in our hearts. And I want to suggest to you that once we feel the reassurance of the wanting one thing really aspect of pure in heart, once we, once we say, yes, that is me, once we feel that reassurance, then, okay, that could give a complacency. I think that would be a perversion of that knowledge of ourselves. What it really gives is a confidence now in spending the rest of our lives, as it were, looking around our spiritual garden and pulling up every last weed that pops up of unrighteousness. Pulling up every superficial, fleeting desire to sin. And looking at those fleeting superficial desires to sin, looking at them in the light of what you really want to want. You go, no, I am currently feeling the desire to sin. It feels very, very strong. Sometimes it feels so overwhelming, I, it's, like it, it's like a steamroller. It just blows me away. It sometimes feels like that. But what I want to want is not to please myself. I want to want to be merciful. 
So that is what I will strive to be. Here's a final thought. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Of course, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel says, what God longs to do is implant a new heart in us, a new life, a new orientation, a new being. It's a pure heart. And if you've come to Christ, he has implanted it. And we are to spend the rest of our lives bringing our lives into line with the new heart that he has given. Again, as at the end of all these talks, just a moment of quiet for you to pray as is right for you in your circumstances. And then I'll close with a prayer. Lord, we want to pray that for each of us, these, these words from you to us will, will refresh us and encourage us and comfort us and reassure us where we need, that we are yours, that we will be shown mercy, have been shown mercy, that we will see God. And we pray they will challenge us where we need, where we might be just seriously drifting away from this almost not wanting to be this anymore, will you use these words to call us back to who you have made us to be and to do all that's needed to to stay on this path. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.